Poro, 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 dee doo 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 doo. What? Yeah, it's yeah. It's faithful. I, did we license that? Can we do that? I do, well, mm, I, I think this might be transformative <laughs> legally. <laughs> Forgot. Now oh. some difficulty there with the beer, Pip. Yes, it's got too much uh, mm. froth. Yes. <laughs> Cool. Good. Hello. <laughs> Hello. So, oh, yes. Sorry, you were about to say. No, I was. Uh, Chris Thurston. Yes, Philippa War. <laughs> there we go. I, was, <laughs> I wasn't about to say anything. What a slick opening this has been. Uh, yes, you wait till the outro. <laughs> <laughs> oh, for, mm-hmm. So, yes, welcome to uh, episode ten, nine. Episode 11, nine. Twelve. Episode, Three, definitely nine. Four and a half. <laughs> episode four and a half point nine. <laughs> Stardate. <laughs> Good. Mm. This has been a shambles so far, Pip, but guide us into a steadier future. Well, mm, I'm not sure that I will. Okay. But basically, <laughs> we are here to talk about King of Clubs, mm. which is the Poirot episode that is next on our list that yes. we have just watched. And it is one of those ones where I think you and I possibly discussed how cases get resolved. Mm. Um, actually, mm. so let's, <laughs> we're at the cinema screen no, behind shooting of... <laughs> we're on a film set is what you <laughs> That's mean. That's the one. The cinema screen behind, as it's also called. Yes, the pre-cinema. <laughs> yes. We're at the pre-cinema. Shall I start again? <laughs> we go to a film set where Hastings is meeting his mate Bonnie Saunders, who mm. is directing a um, play, <laughs> cinema. <laughs> He's directing right. a cinema. If I ever forget a character's name for an entire episode of this podcast again, you don't get to hold that over me. You just don't. You just don't. Okay, fine. Would you have known Bonnie Saunders' name? Absolutely not. <laughs> Do you know what Hastings' first name is? Arthur? Yes. Okay. Miss Lemon? Uh, Pauline? No. No, that's the actress. Uh, 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 Felicity. Felicity, okay, yeah. That could, yeah. Hmm. Hmm. I didn't know. No. Okay, no. anyway, so I feel like, <laughs> I feel like we've taken a rocky road to get to the first shot of this episode of Poirot. Okay, <clears throat> well, yes. So it's on the film set and uh, we are seeing the scene of a lady in what seems to be some vague oasis Mm. in the desert in a non-specific fashion who is sort of being told to make a slightly more amorous (laughs) moment with um, her beloved who is definitely not her husband yes she's she's being bullied the actress is being bullied on set by a a cigar chewing uh movie mogul studio head called henry reed reedburn Reedburn. i don't think his name's henry i can't remember i remember i checked in the credits henry reedburn um he's he's eminently murderable and will only become more murderable Mm, um, the more the he co- talks, the more he talks, and is in this episode. <laughs> yes, he's a complete naughty man. 
he has very specific ideas on what love is and love apparently requires he, he, five second pauses between mm, exclamations this looked like it was quite a lot of fun to film there's quite a lot of like ham ham acting if that makes sense mm. like they were also introduced so her like uh co-star uh, isn't that important? But then the the man. Well, in like- that scene, although I guess it's sort of maybe worth the observation that it is of the time when a co-star in the desert called Ahmed yep. is very much the the thing. And played by a uh, a white actor in. Was it? I think so. Yeah, in in heavy film makeup. It's definitely, I mean, they are, you know, um, some extent sending up the, you know, uh, yeah, filmmaking practices of the time. But I think it was, you know, obviously it sort of sets the scene of the type of production. Yes. Yeah. It's not particularly classy. It is. Uh, we also introduced to Ralph, uh, something who mm. is a sort of, uh, actor who was, uh, big in the talkies. No, he was uh, no, big, big in, in the big in the in non-talkies, the big in the quieties, and then struggled <laughs> with the talkies. There's quite a lot of like Hollywood sort tropes. of tropes crammed into this scene because you have the kind of ingenue actress who's Verity Sinclair, Valerie, Valerie Sinclair. That was close. That was close <laughs> enough. And the kind of um, sort of schlocky epic setup and the sourced up old actor who's past his prime and the mogul. Well, I don't think he was sourced up. I think he's just, it's oh. that he sort of dries up every now and again. Yeah. And it, just, he has good days and bad days. He, well, he's, he's not about, a reliable man. He's about to be sourced up is probably oh. what I'm kind of getting ahead to. Oh, fair. Um, and, uh, and the, the sort of, uh, well-meaning director who's completely overridden by the studio head who's a... Who is unsurprisingly the one that Hastings is friends with. Yes, exactly. No, so Hastings is surprised is friends with the director. Yeah, yeah. the yeah, ineffectual yeah. director. <laughs> yes. Um, I loved Poirot's line as the, they enter... Uh, films are boring. Films are, all films are boring. But the <laughs> actors, they are interesting. Um, <laughs> reasonably because they kill each other all the time. Mm, yes. Um... And we also meet an old acquaintance of Poirot's. Mm. Do you remember his name? Prince Paul of Maid Uppengrad. Mauritania. Okay. <laughs> I thought I was pretty sure it was made up country, but alas. <laughs> so he uh, he bustles over and asks Poirot to call just just Paul. He's just there as the backer for the film ah, yes. and is engaged to Ingenue. Mm. Mm. But Ingenue is also in trouble with Mogul. Well, Mogul is trying to uh, entice her onto the casting couch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's grim. Mm. Uh, yes. So, uh, at the same time, so actually what, what's important here is that uh, Henry Reedburn, the, the producer, is a totally unlikable character. He's and- also just sacked the um, the guy from the Silenties. Yeah. Yes. So uh, Ralph. So uh, Ralph gets fired for for screwing up his lines one too many times. Which, uh, to be fair, I feel like that is a legit excuse for firing. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, the director's movie is being torpedoed by this aggressive uh, studio head. Um, the uh, the actress is being um, uh, bullied physically and psychologically by all accounts bullied and coerced and um she is engaged to the prince who is funding the film so what the important thing with this is 
this is just motive a go go, right? <laughs> like it's spin the wheel. Like this is actually, I mean, I quite enjoyed this, particularly after the last episode, because it's quite a traditional murder mystery opening, right? It's like yes. here's a big group of people who have a really good reason to be happy if this guy gets his head smashed in. Mm-hmm. Um, what do we where do we go after that? We and then I think we even get like a doubling uh, down scene where we see a very drunk. Ralph yeah. staggering out of a bar in the rain going like, I'll show him, I'll show him what I'm made of, and then vanishing off into the night. Yes. But then I believe we cut to um, Mr. Reedburn's house where they, mm. uh, he and Bunny are watching the rushes from today's filming and Mr. Reedburn helpfully points out that a nurse needs more sex appeal. Yes. That, when she's applying bandages or something. Yeah, I mean, it's his sort of obsession with the... um the the sexual uh tension of the film is i think mostly just again more um more leaning in on what a what a creep he is Mm. like there's really no purpose to it beyond you know this guy is just like he goes off on a brief soliloquy about how all women on film must be shown to be incapable of not responding to the bestial there's something Masculine about the, energy the of that demon co-stars. that that is always lurking within them, or yes, something. Yeah. It's very. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. He's that guy. He's that guy. <laughs> Luckily, he will be dead soon. Spoilers. Oh, yes. <laughs> but uh, so yeah, and then basically everyone is heading over to his house yeah. except Bunny, who is leaving. Yeah. So you see, uh, but yeah. So in 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 quick succession, you see Valerie getting out of a cab into the rain to yeah. sort of like creep over to Reed Burns' house. You see Bunny leaving the house, and then and you- under a pole and in a massive coat possibly extra of the week that coat <laughs> this is it's so big that it makes him look comically big for his car it's yes. like a clown car it looks like chewbacca driving noddy's car mm. and then chewbacca nearly crashes into ralph who is going the other way incredibly drunk yes uh and they also pass a uh roma encampment which yes. is dwelt on in a sort of well this is going to come back in several so th- yes this is a moment where actually the kind of double reality of this episode because obviously it's about actors and a film set and is itself a television production mm. actually caught me off guard because so there is a like a, a like a traveler camp uh, um uh like on the road but it's such a stereotypical kind of film, mm. filmic kind of gypsy caravan setup with like yeah. old timey caravans and things. I actually missed part of the episode because I was looking up because I realized I didn't know the term to mm. use nowadays, if you see what I mean. Mm. So I, I, if we have got it wrong, I apologize. Yeah. Basically. Oh, no, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm using the episode's own terminology. Um, oh, yeah. Self-consciously, but like, and, um, what I'm saying is it's sort of we're trying <laughs> well yeah absolutely but like i guess what i'm saying is that the episode itself um has such a uh it's a self-conscious well so an unselfconsciously filmic depiction of roma life right like but it's in very the it's a very agatha christie's time kind of version of it as well yes um yeah uh, but even you know and and but even this um episode of television from the late 1980s doesn't get more intelligent with the, that depiction. What I'm saying is that in the moment where you see, uh, like, I wasn't genuinely wasn't sure what was going on when you see him like glance out of the window at this, you know, uh, set of caravans by the side of the road because it's such a bizarrely filmic image that it actually confused me about like 
Has he just driven oh, through a film okay. set? Right, because... Oh, right, okay, That's what yeah. I'm getting at. Uh, I think I think it's more just that they adapted the source material, presumably, mm. without... I don't know this short story, actually. I don't right. remember it. But, I mean, um, and, and, you know, um, later in the episode, you know, there'll be a scene that kind of plays a lot of that stuff for laughs in a way that's not necessarily kind of particularly progressive. Mm. So I guess uh, it was... Um, it's an odd moment in the production for me because like I, I was literally wondering if um, Reed Byrne lived at the edge of a film set mm. like because because of how kind of odd and dis- uh, well also distracting is the fact is. that um, Bonnie swerves to avoid being smashed up by Ralph and mm. his car door flies open just because he swerved too hard <laughs> so I was also kind of like wait is everything just made of paper it is, yes point? old timey cars which is both so. You have to hold Although, the doors open all the time. Well, maybe, maybe I the door was. That when I was very little, my mother was absolutely terrified because we went to stay with a friend of hers, and um, her friend had a car that. Um, so it didn't. Ha- it was one of those ones that didn't have seatbelts in the back, and also she had to hit it with a hammer to start it, <laughs> and the back doors would sometimes fly open. Right. So we like. We, the kids, had to sort of, like, form a critical mass by holding on to each other and various bits of the seats and hoping Mm. the door wouldn't fly open. And I think my mother was very much like, we are never getting in that car again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I suspect the doors flew open because of the sheer size of his coat. That's probably the other Mm. contributing factor there. Well, indeed. Mm. Mm. Anyway. Uh, yes. Yes. So all the all the all the important things about this scene is to set up a bunch of stuff that isn't going to be important later. So that's well, and then we just cut to the police being phoned. Do we not? Yes, we do. We cut to a house that will be important, the Willows, um, mm. where uh, Valerie's sort of toweling off her hair because she's been soaked through. And, and uh, uh, two uh, uh, mother and daughter we haven't met yet. Uh, well, we are now meeting the Oglanders. Phone the police um, because this stranger has just shown up in their home with a you know, shaken with the story. Mm. And then we cut to Poro getting a phone call and you were delighted by this because it's one of those scenes where Poro is asleep. I was very delighted by two things in quick succession. The first of those things was uh, Poro asleep because Poro, we haven't seen him asleep much. It's happened a few times in season one, but you know, it's like a treat every couple of episodes um, because he sleeps like a a fastidious Dracula. Yes. Um, like on his back with his little arms tucked up, holding the duvet just so. It's it's adorable. I want to sleep like that. Mm, but you can't. You're no. too. You're too, you're a sloppy sleeper. <laughs> well, you you just said that he's fastidious. Yes, yeah, he's yeah. Asleep. So you, yes, the opposite yeah. of fastidious, I guess, is sloppy. Is mm, it not? I suppose. Yes. So where is where's the affront coming from? <laughs> well, I try. Anyway, um, <laughs> um, you'd hate it. You'd do your back in. That's true. That is true. Mm. But it is adorable. But then this gets even better because he gets a midnight phone call from Prince Paul, mm. um, who is calling from his own bedroom, his own Liberace dreamscape. So, but his bedroom is also curiously unreal, and it's essentially like it's a corner of the film set that has been decked mm. out to look like a bedroom, right? Yes, yeah. But 
the amazing thing about it to me is that it looks like the regal set from animal crossing <laughs> with you know, just a sort of sea themed wall mm. and that's his sort of the height of regal luxury that yeah. he's got going i think on. maybe this is the thing that keeps reoccurring to me and across a couple of scenes in this episode is so much of it is sort of like it's quite like because the first shot of the episode is a very fake looking uh set on a soundstage designed to look like the desert and then it pulls out to reveal all of the uh painted backdrops and things and the illusion of it but there are lots of other maybe this is subconscious maybe this sorry you know maybe this is a deliberate stylistic decision but there are so many other moments in this episode where the actual staging of the episode looks bizarrely filmic and artificial Hmm. that it's either quite a clever bit of television conception or it is uh, simply it's the end of the season and they're running yes. out of budget. <laughs> or it, yes, it is the end of the first season of an ITV show in 1989. One of those two things is true. <laughs> Maybe both. Anyway, the reason that Paul is phoning is because he and Valerie are engaged and he wants to sort of use Poirot's discretion to avoid any scandal that mm. she might be getting embroiled in. Yes. So Poirot agrees and off they toddle. Yes. Uh, but um, toddling there even faster is Inspector Jap. <laughs> Yay! Um, who arrives in the rain at uh, Reed Burns' house. His Art Deco Cribs mansion. Yes, um, where he uh, is met by the uh, his manserv- uh, Reed Burns' manservant, mm-hmm. uh, Frampton, I mm-hmm. think. And uh, who, you described him as a budget Michael Caine? Yeah, well... The thing is, I don't want to say that exactly because he's a, he reminds me a lot of Michael Caine's version of Alfred from the Batman movies. Yes. But obviously this came first. So I don't want, I, I want to call it a proto Michael right, Caine okay. because yes. I, I feel like obviously the, the timeline is on his side with mm. this one. Mm, first step on the Pokemon evolution. <laughs> sure. Why not? Um, so, I mean, actually, uh, so, so even though he has a few scenes and, and a fair number of lines in, in one of them, uh, Frampton could maybe be a contender here for extra of the, uh, extra of the week or extra of the episode simply because of the moment where they, uh, he has no idea anything's gone wrong and he's taken by, uh, Jap through into the library and they're on the library floor dead. It's Mr. Reed. It's Mr. Reed Byrne. Surprise. Mm. Mr. Reed Byrne, by the way, is played by um, Henry from Drop the Dead Donkey, mm. David Swift. Huh. Is he not? I, mm. that's, I think that's why I was confused when you said that his name was Henry, because I was like, is it? Or is that the other thing? I'm pretty sure his name is Henry. But yeah. Anyway, Reed Byrne is dead. And um, I did very much, I very much enjoyed a little bit of acting when um, Frampton goes to kind of kneel next to him, but doesn't touch him. Um, and then... Jap says, don't touch him, and turns around with this sort of like, a burr expression on his face. That, and actually this is not a fault of the actor so much as the, uh, so much as the direction, but it, the whole, the frame gets held by just a little bit too long, and it's profoundly awkward. It's kind of like, oh, he's, he's dead though. <laughs> anyway, next scene. Yeah. Well. <laughs> the thing though is that I also thought that he was slightly too well dressed for a manservant. Because he very much answers the door as if he lives in that house yeah. as the owner. I was confused at first as well. I thought it was a different house. I thought yeah. it was like they were visiting the neighbours or something. Yeah, he was slightly too sort of well-dressing gowned. Yeah, he was on his way to bed by lots of things, but... 
lavishly so. Maybe they couldn't afford to get a new dressing gown that wasn't a posh dressing gown. So, you know, they're just making do at the end of the series. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> That's probably an ex- explanation for a lot of things, actually. Mm. But then, so Jap and his colleagues head on over to the Oglanders' mm. house. The Oglanders are extremely wan. Like, pale. Oh. Like, they, they are... I thought you meant, like, I, I don't know what I thought you meant. I was just like... Like, they're wan as heck, is what I'm saying. Like, they have a kind of weird kind of, I mean, not, obviously not American Gothic, but like, they kind of remind me of that. Like, mm. in a kind of English Gothic kind of way. Like, yeah. there's a, a, a sort of infirm uh, elderly father. Well, there's a very sort of, very British dinginess to their house. Yes, it's very, yeah, awful wallpaper. Kind of grey light and sort of heavy, oppressive kind of... Yeah, and their explanation is that they were all playing bridge for an hour when there was a commotion and a banging on the window and Valerie St. Clair um, burst in, uh, you know, uh, blabbering about murder. Um, but this is something like, there's the, there's the daughter and the son as well, and they're both extremely one they're all very one is what i'm saying geraldine and ronnie geraldine and ronnie ronnie incidentally this is a, a good fact uh played by sean pertwee who i'm pretty sure is alfred in gotham so oh, it that, all circles back it around does. If you, ding ding that's your other uh batman weird illusion in this episode it doesn't nice. mean something no <laughs> but yes so they uh basically Geraldine says that she recognized Valerie because she's a fan mm. and Ronnie just stands around looking like an absolute wet blanket. Yes, or like a kind of yes, like a kind of suburban Frankenstein mm. kind of figure. I think mm. says monster, sorry pedants. <laughs> anyway, uh and then I believe it is trotting off back to uh the the Art Deco house. Yes. Where who do we encounter? <gasps> but Tastings and Barrow who arrived. And Jap is like, oh, oh God, no. <laughs> this he is goes, here we go again, I do believe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good line, actually. There's, there's definitely, so there's definitely a sense that at this point, um, I think Pyro goes off the rails a little bit in this episode in terms of... <gasps> he's in full manic pixie dream detective mode yeah, again. He's definitely not letting Jap in on any of his thought processes. And some of this episode will follow Jap and Jap's ba- banter wagon full of bobbies, mm. uh, getting just everything wrong, basically, as being as wrong as they possibly can. But also Pyro from basically this point onwards won't even really let Hastings in on anything he's thinking or doing. And Hastings is mostly going to stand around apart from one spectacular scene, silent. Um, he's just being, in, he's doing the manic pixie dream detective thing where he's inscrutable and odd rather yes. than, rather than sort of sitting there playing with plane propellers and like wandering around a house, you know? And I have a theory about why that is the case in this episode, but I don't want to get to it before we've explained what happened. So like the mystery is resolved. So, well, basically we sort of, while, Jap and um Hastings and Poirot are all in the room together. Poirot and Hastings spend a lot of time, you know, essentially cold-shouldering Jap by having lots of meaningful glances between themselves. Mm. But also Jap is very sort of keen to say that his suspicions have now fallen on the on the traveller community yeah, yeah. nearby. I believe. Mm-hmm. So, and then 
Poirot and Hastings head off to deal with the leaves and the grass on Poirot's shoes <laughs> as they as they tramp about. It's a good tramping. It's mm. very good tramping about. I did enjoy that. Pyro looking put out to be walking through some leaves is a reliable delight. Something you yeah. get twice in this episode. And Hastings has a really nice suit this episode. Really mm. nice pinstripe. Mm. Suits him. Suits him, yeah. He's well cut. Yes. Dapper man. He doesn't contribute anything, but he's he's there. Do you know where they've gone? Back to the willows. Yeah. In fact, to they the Oaklanders to see Geraldine. Yeah, so, so Pyro sort of... Um, Oh, there's a good moment before this, which will become important. Because, well, they're going to see Valerie, but yes. Yeah. Sorry. Um, but we, we skipped something that is actually pretty important because it's, it's Jap's actually, like, so there's two moments in this episode where Jap says something like, actually, I think you'll find, bro, I'm very good at this. And he's not. Um, the but, annoying thing is he must be good at it to a certain point because he's clearly become, you know. Inspector. Uh, and he works at Scotland Yard. It's like he's he's actually competent, and he is competent. It's yeah. just that every time he encounters Poirot, like his usual policing seems to go out of the window, or it's just not applicable because Poirot somehow turns gravity upside down by being there. Mm. I think it's like, but and also I think it's because you know. Jap is used to kind of like in this case it's going to be important that Jap is wrong about stuff and the thing Jap says in in that previous scene is that you know um uh, Pyro asks why did Valerie run down and across the garden to the um to the Willows house when the Willows being where the Oglanders yes is. um when there's a much closer neighbor out of the front of the house Mm. And, um, Jap says kind of smugly and knowingly, well, Pyro, that window with the curtain was drawn, it would have been in the first light she saw. I'm very good at this, bye bye. And that him, that being something that he's been set up to see is, will become important later. So it's like Jap's incompetence is kind of used as a. I think it is competence, but it's because he, like, he has understood that that spatial layout makes sense with that excuse. Hmm. It's just that beyond that point, he has not gone. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I suppose that's the thing is Pyro is usually surrounded by people who take everything at face value and Pyro is the one that's capable of seeing things laterally. Like, and usually you don't want someone who does that because that's the whole thing about, you know, if you hear hooves, it's going to be a horse, not a zebra. Right. So, Hmm. Like, uh, nine times out of ten, this stuff will siege up through a case and get the right person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But obviously in these moments, Poirot turning up obviously means that nothing is going to be the right answer. <laughs> and like, Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Poirot's presence is the sign of uh, a magic crime as opposed to a... Something you can, you know, just because, like, because Jap is always, and this maybe is an interesting thing to, you know, pause on. Like, and it happened in this episode. It happens as as uh, Jap, uh, based on a piece of evidence given by Valerie, starts to aggressively pursue the the travelers. Like that, um, uh, Jap goes by like what he thinks is, you know, kind of learned sort of wisdom like you know the kind of the assumptions he can make about people based on years on the beat that kind of thing you know it's always this sort of person Poirot is is a kind of regular kind of Jap line Mm. and um, you can kind of maybe charitably imagine that Jap is often right when Poirot isn't there but literally every time Poirot is there 
Jap is wrong about everything. Mm. Yeah. And I can understand why Jap sometimes just goes, oh, here we go again. <laughs> exactly. Because it means that every sensible assumption that he thinks he's making yeah. is going to be idiotic. Yeah. Um, and the, the interpretation of that is less charitable to Jap, but um, possibly as the story is in better stead is that uh, Jap is just always quite bad at solving crimes because he relies on these kinds of... Um, well, he profiles people. He, yeah, aggressively profiling people, basically. Whereas um, at least when Poirot is there, someone is willing to look at things with a different eye and, you know, not... And, and particularly look at it with an eye from someone outside of that kind of heavily stratified uh, British society. Hmm. Hmm. But yeah, so... I, and I think that's all part of the point, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Like, Christie's poking fun at pretty much everybody mm. with these things because um, she sort of mocks Poirot a bit and mocks Jap and his assumptions and Hastings is sort of <laughs> bears the brunt of a bunch of it. Yeah. And, you know, and the different adaptations bring out different elements of that to different degrees, I guess. Mm. So, um, but anyway, mm. while Geraldine is uh, pottering, she, uh, chats a little about the bridge game that they were having mm. which i was just like shut up geraldine just shut up why are you telling us about bridge and then i remembered what the episode is called but this is the thing is like every time bridge comes up in an episode of poirot it's going to be important yeah did agatha christie love bridge i think it's more that it was a a really popular pastime mm. but nonetheless it is we didn't have esports yes oh god really <laughs> 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 that's that's not what it stands in for. It's a competitive TV too. Well, no, but it's 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 what people Best do. Of I whatever. think it's because we didn't have television. Is the is the probably the yes yes <laughs> like what do families do when they're sat around? But you see what I mean? Night. Yes, yeah, yeah. Anyway, yes, but um, so <laughs> then they go up to see Valerie, who is still you know recovering at uh, Willows. Mm. And she is reclining dramatically on a chaise long in satin under She is also very wan. Not that that's foreshadowing. <laughs> it's just, it's a, it's a pale place. I think there's just not much light in England, babe. Yeah, maybe. Like, I'm pretty wan. <laughs> the, um, I, I liked, um, uh, I liked the shot in this where uh, she sort of confesses that, um, uh, Reed Burns was blackmailing her, but she doesn't want to say why. And she uh, goes as far as to say that his uh, sort of demands on her had become, uh, you know, sort of inappropriate and that he'd, well, even more inappropriate and that he claimed that he was in love with her and that he, he, he wanted... was trying to blackmail her into sex. Yes, I, yes, exactly. But the show doesn't say that explicitly. No. Um, and, um, she says something like, I trust you know what I'm saying. And, and, um, Poirot replies with like, you know, courage, madame. And Hastings obviously has no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> you just want to give him a birds and the bees book, don't you? So, yes. Someone like, needs to eventually. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yes. So that happens. Um, but yes, yeah, so she confesses that she was being blackmailed by him, but won't say what about. And, um, yes. See, this is the part where I started to remember this episode because mm. it's been so many years since I've seen this one. Like, I, yeah, mm. years and years and years. Um, and I remembered because she is so clearly doing acting as she remembers the 
the events mm. of the evening and how she came in and he was lying there and then she saw some booted feet under a curtain, you know, at the, at mm. the base of a curtain. So she knew that there was a man still in the room. And so, so she ran and that's how she ended up at the willows and, you know, all of that stuff. Um, and I remember cause when I did first watch it, cause I never saw it while it was on. I saw it, you know, years and years later. Yeah. Um, um, when I first watched it, I always thought that there was something, or I, I remember I thought there was something that didn't add up because they, the, the Oglanders say that she screamed, murder, he's been murdered, um, and then fainted. Whereas when you see them actually telephoning the police, she's just looking really matter of fact and drying her hair off. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So it, it like none of that tallied, which is why I was kind of like, okay, something's going on with that family, mm. right? And then when she's upstairs telling Poirot and Hastings what happened, it's like there is just so much acting that clearly plays into the the um stereotyping that Jap would have been sort of set up to do anyway. Like it yeah, it feels like okay, well this is mm. the the stereotypical criminal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's and it's to again to Jap's like um so Yes, discredit. discredit that he takes this again completely at face value. So um she says this thing about seeing boots under the curtain and that's what made her flee. So Jap will spend the rest of this episode like Cinderella-ing his way through nearby people who are likely to be wearing hobnail boots mm. trying to find a murderer and failing, which is a bit like that uh, Adventure Johnny Waverly bit where he's like, I'm sure they went to London. I'm going yeah. there now. Bye. Uh, I found a blind alley. I think I'll stay. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. But then, um, Poirot goes back downstairs and has been asked to, you know, speak to the mistress of the house. Mm. Um, so he's waiting in the, in the living room and that obviously gives him a chance to look at the hands of cards that are on the table because the, the Oglanders have been asked not to move anything in the room. Mm. And so he's figuring out that the hand that, um, Geraldine says that she played or the bid that she made mm. when they were playing couldn't, that didn't make any sense. Yeah. You know? Um, and he also notices that there's a card missing from yeah. the deck, which also doesn't make sense. Which is the King of Clubs, which mm -hmm. gives us the title of the episode. Yes. And then they have a conversation that doesn't really amount to much, but, but yes. Oh, sorry. Oh no, you go on. Um, Poirot just sort of goes, well, this explains everything and looks really pleased. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. And then, uh, Mrs. Oglander enters. And, um, so Geraldine has previously said that she was sat in the bridge seat facing oh, the window. Yeah. So, and yeah. so this is, this is the important details that like, and then her mother, um, Mrs. Oglander comes in and says the same thing. Yeah. So, they were both clearly not doing that because they say that they were in the same seat and you know there's a card missing and um actually at a previous point they've also seen a family photo on the on the mantelpiece so yeah yeah this one falls together real quick mm. um so um y yes so at this point Paro uh becomes kind of a bit um, poor Hastings unbearably smug yes um, proclaiming that solves everything when he realizes a single card is missing from a bridge deck in an unrelated house. 
he's right, but still, he's not letting Hastings in on this whatsoever. No, so Hastings explains cubism for 10 minutes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> which is what we do next. <laughs> um, yes, um, Pyro goes through, I think it's like Reed Burns' letters or something, um, as Hastings tries to explain modern art. And I don't really want to quote or paraphrase this scene because it's just as good as you'd imagine from it's that description. It's amazing. I love how he thinks of cubism as Quite showing clever, really. you both sides of the thing so you don't have to walk around the back. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Which is, you know, very... <laughs> efficient and then he says he says yes it's quite scientific really however i am paraphrasing it now but like uh but you know unfortunately they're so off their minds on a booze and drugs that they actually don't know the actual nature of anything so they can't show you the accurate front and back of anything but that's the artistic temperament i suppose anyway what are we doing paro <laughs> it's so, very yeah good. and then i i can't remember but he I, I really can't remember anything that Poirot says in that scene because I'm usually too busy giggling. Mm. And then Poirot's just really smug and he's like, oh, yeah, no, I've got the card. Here it is in my pocket, King of Clubs. There it is. It was in the pack all along. And Hastings is just like, oh. uh, at which point uh, the which director is reasonable. Yeah. Which point the director shows up, doesn't he? Yeah, well, yeah, because then Hastings sends him off to talk to Ralph, right? Then they both just sort of disappear off in the car to do. Yeah, well, yes, because then, then the, yeah, because the phone rings and the phone is for the director. Um, so it, it kind of resolves the plot thread super quickly, um, mm. which is the director arrives having rushed from the film set to say that the previous night he saw Ralph driving erratically towards, oh, yeah, uh, Reed Burns' oh, house. All of this. Um, and then the phone rings and it's for the director, whose name I've completely forgotten. Bernie Saunders. Bernie Saunders. Uh, Bernie Sanders. And, um, and he then gets the phone call and it's Ralph or like someone on behalf of Ralph who says that, uh, he crashed his car early in the hours of the following morning. So it probably wasn't him that did it. Um, and that he's all right. He's just got a, like a fractured collarbone and a hangover. And so, uh, he says he'll go, um, uh, uh, Blarney or whatever his name is says that he'll go off and see him. Um, at which Bunny. point, yeah, I know. I'm just being a yee. Um, and um, at which point, uh, Paro uses this as an excuse to get rid of Hastings. Basically, just like, why don't you go with him for no reason? And he's like, okay, and then off he goes in the car. But doesn't he say, isn't it to just talk to? Oh Ralph, yeah, that's but... even worse. Paro sort of says like, oh, you can ask him where he was. And Paro absolutely knows this is pointless. The thing is, though, I get the feeling it's because he just wants to broach the actual delicate subject matter on his own. Yeah. Which, given some of Hastings's rather blunt queries and things, is I, I get the impulse, but mm. it is, you know, you do sort of see Poirot's sort of not cruel side, but he. He clearly doesn't, doesn't rate Hastings at this point. This is in the mean side of the Manic Pixie Dream Detective, is that he knows he's the smartest person in the room, and he doesn't really bring anyone else up to speed. He just does things. Yeah. And so he doesn't let Hastings know why it's important that Hastings doesn't go with him or whatever. He gives Hastings a pointless job to do, which does feel a little bit mean. Yeah. But makes Hastings feel like he's important, so off he happily wags. Yeah, and then the rest is mostly sort of mopping up. Which Pretty much. If so, if the the setup 
uh, that we've mentioned earlier about the cards and about how people couldn't possibly been playing cards and how there was a family photo hasn't sort of made it entirely clear. Um, essentially, Valerie is the second daughter yeah. at the Oglander house, but she's changed her name. Um, yes, and they have changed their name. Oh, that's true. So yes, a- they all used to be Hawtrey. <laughs> yes, exactly. The Oglanders used to be Hawtreys, but Mr. Hawtrey was... Uh, shamed in some sort of fraud scandal. It's false accounting. Yeah. Um, and changed his name to Oglander. And then his daughter went off and became an actress, changed her name to Sinclair. Um, and the information that uh, Reed Burns um, was uh, blackmailing her with was this information because they happened to be neighbours, which is kind of mad. Well, but yeah, well, he put he put two and two together and then was trying to because paul wouldn't marry her if if he he knew about the disgrace yeah so that was the that was what the blackmail hinged on i don't know why they ended up living near each other but i mean yeah the, the thing the thing in this episode expediency. yeah is is the fact that they're neighbors like there's no there's no it's just a huge coincidence basically um but um yes so but none of this really explains the death it's probably important to know. Yeah, we have like this moment of kind of almost a sort of like gotcha between Poirot and Mrs. Oglander as he kind of reveals that he's figured all of this stuff out. Um, and then the kind of the, their little constructed, uh, lie kind of collapses around them. There's even a moment where Ronnie comes back in and says, you know, careful what you're saying. That Frenchie's still around and Poirot emerges very theatrically from a doorway inside his own house. Like, hello. Like, hello. <laughs> and then Lee, like, and then makes and then a takes huge his leave. makes a huge meal out of leaving just to kind of make him feel bad. Yeah, um, that's Poirot. <laughs> but Poirot also resolves to keep this thing, whole thing secret because this itself is not the mm. crime, right? This is not a solution to the murder. It's just simply what they're hiding. Yeah, uh, it's related, but it's not. You know, it isn't the substance of the thing. Mm. Uh, at which point Poirot goes back to find Hastings sat reading the newspaper in the chair where Well, the m- in the meantime, on his way back, he passes Jap and the oh, Jap yeah. full of the lads, lads, lads. Yeah. And they trade sort of little barbs where Poirot is essentially like, oh, you know, what a shame. I seem to have failed. How silly I am. And Jap is essentially a bit smug in a way that is obviously designed for for us to laugh at him on Poirot's Mm. behalf while Poirot feels even more smug than usual. Yeah, particularly because the way this is going to resolve. So Jap has failed to find his man. Um, He offers Poirot a ride home in a car that is literally 100% full of bobbies. Yeah, he's still convinced because this is obviously only, what, day one of the inquiry. So he's convinced that they'll get the person eventually. It's mm. just a case of, you know, basically trying on every shoe in the land. Yes, yes. And yeah. everything will be fine. So he's sort of still in that upbeat mood. I'm guessing if Poirot d- drops in a week later, it'll just be like, oh, don't talk to me about this whole nonsense. I've got so many shoes. Probably would have forgotten by then as well. So, but yeah, so then he drives off happily and Poirot heads back to rendezvous with Hastings, who has come back from his fruitless task. Yes. And is now reading the newspaper on the chair where the guy died. Yeah. Well, it's the, yeah, it's the weird lion encrusted throne Mm. that is near the window. In this extremely gauche building. Um, So, and Poirot basically says, 
that he's solved it and that that uh there isn't a murderer because there hasn't been a murder mm. and this being the revelation uh, explains a lot like so you notice Poirot goes into this, this his sort of like very capricious um state i think when there hasn't been a murder because he takes things a lot less seriously. Like, because you see serious Pyro come out when it comes to matters of murder, right? Like, he can be inflexible with people mm. when it, when someone has been murdered. But when someone yeah. hasn't been murdered, he don't care. He, <laughs> like, yeah, doesn't matter what he crime he did. Tit about, basically. Yeah. And also, especially when he's solving a crime for someone he doesn't like. Yes. That's when he'll really dig his heels in and you know yes because he's play a cat. around <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but yeah and and so to sort of not make a meal out of it in the way that poro does yeah. what has happened is that ronnie and valerie had gone round because of the whole blackmailing thing yeah and ronnie had punched mr reedburn in the face and he'd fallen down and banged his head on a chair and then died and mm. so to to basically get out of trouble they had dragged the body over to the other side of the room where the window was where they could see that house and valerie could say you know well i was there i did go but then i found the body and i saw the nearest house and i ran yeah and you make up something about shoes that will lead jap and a merry dance yeah so there's no no one's going to get caught because nothing happened and they didn't then have to explain their, yeah, know, and, their and, blackmail material. Paro considers this an accident rather than manslaughter um, in that he doesn't really believe that there's a crime here worth punishing. And also Reed Burn was awful, so no one cares. Yes, exactly. So Paro basically lets this entire one slide. Yeah. Yeah. Um, to preserve the secret as well. Um, and we get like basically a, a kind of bizarre happy ending off the back of well hastings is still baffled yes <laughs> yes but no hastings is, is baffled by the fact that why they haven't told anyone well yeah but hastings is just sort of uh and then we cut to the film set and hastings is still clearly a bit confused about you know which parts people know and don't yes so. Because everybody on the film set is now a million percent happier and, you know... The movie's going better. The movie's going well. People are clapping each other's performances. Ralph remembers his lines, even though he's got his arm in a sling because of the whole Oh, drunk driving. Thing. Oh, doofus. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a very, like, oh, the um, it's, it's basically the reverse It's a Wonderful Life ending, where it's like... <laughs> It's okay to let let Ronnie off with manslaughter because this guy dying has materially improved everybody else's life. So what I was going to say at the beginning and then thought I would wait until we had covered what actually happens is that I think a while ago either you or Tom Francis was sort of asking about whether – I think you, it was something about whether Poirot always gets – the culprit or Mm. whatever and it's like the thing is sometimes he just sort of keeps it to himself for some reason you know yeah yeah. like he will always solve what has happened but he doesn't always tell the police like he doesn't always 
this is it. I think the question was about Poirot's sense of morality, right? Mm. And I was pointing out that he doesn't actually always act in accordance with the law. Mm. He will sometimes just take matters into his own hands and deliver what he thinks is justice. Yes. And so the people that he thinks don't deserve to get prosecuted for a crime, usually pretty women, mm. <laughs> um, mm. yes, will yeah. end up sort of, or very sympathetic women yeah will end up sort of you know in in a you know i i will keep your secret well that's kind of the situation here right like uh valerie is you know the fiance of one of Poro's friends and is herself a woman who is put in a a a terrible position and um obviously was privy to something bad fatal Mm. but Poro kind of just forgives that yeah Uh, he's kind of um yes yeah, he certainly does not adhere to whatever his kind of prime directive probably would be as a um He's definitely of not a policeman. Yes, he's definitely anymore. not. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah, he's he is a yeah, manic pixie agent of justice sort of. Yeah. Like Batman. Well, he he definitely intervenes in the world in a way other than just solving the puzzle mm. he, yes he also dispenses some justice at various points yeah which what is, he thinks is justice yeah and it, that maybe plays into why he can be come across as a, more than a little bit uh unreasonable to some of his friends sometimes because he is you know supremely confident in his ability to make the right decision about whatever it is that's happening right like mm. Um, and, and often, and doesn't let anyone else in, doesn't, you know, he's not a character that expresses anxiety about these weights of responsibility or these choices or the lives that he's playing with. He makes very sh- he sure does decisions. later that- on, these early cases are, are sort of also very much not weighty matters, mm. generally. Like a man was, was punched and died. Yeah, but what I'm saying is like this, there's more room to explore questions of morality or the mm. idea that someone might be conflicted about some of these choices in later episodes particularly when they extend the runtime and go for like feature length yeah yeah stuff with you know higher production values basically whereas think, these are the shorter less fleshed out cases from short stories right? yeah that makes sense although one thing i would say actually is that um, i really like the last shot of this episode because it ends with them on the film set <laughs> and hastings and pyro leave uh through a door that's very slowly raised again like actually maybe like and obviously it's easy to make fun of some aspects of this tv production but like it was a bit like laurel and hardy wasn't yeah it? like i think i genuinely do think there's probably some clever the filmmaking going on in Pyro and some of it is conscious. I don't know if every, everything is, is, is 100% a conscious creative decision, but I do really like the moment where they're leaving the film set and it gives them the sort of walk into the sunset almost, a sort of filmic exit as, as this, uh, kind of, um, studio door slides up and, uh, they get sort of walk out into the light and then Hastings goes left and Pyro goes right, which is a very stagey exit. And then Poirot realises that he's just walked in completely the wrong direction, turns around and has to follow Hastings. I and, liked that because it's Hastings' one moment of power in this whole Yeah, episode. and it's also, you know, in an, in an episode that's very heavy on Poirot having all the answers and not sharing them, mm. it's really nice to see Poirot be wrong. Yeah. Briefly, even I, if it's just about which door is the right one. that is very much a conscious thing. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that's... The thing is, though, right, it's going to be... Something that I'm now thinking about is if Paul and Valerie do get married, yes. presumably she would want her family at the wedding. Mm. 
So he's going to find out that the Oglanders were actually her family. You see, I suppose the thing that I'm not sure is whether or not. So I don't. Yeah. So the charitable interpretation <laughs> of that is that he knows that she's an Oglander, but he doesn't know that Oglanders are hort trees. But the thing is, as soon as she marries a prince, people are going to stop digging into her past, right? I guess so. So this is really much just kicking the problem I mean, a yeah. bit down the To be honest, road. it's weird. They were neighbours. There's, yeah, there's a sort of... <laughs> I mean, that's... Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. It's it's a peculiarly uns well it's not peculiarly but it's an it's another kind of unsatisfying one mm. because it's there are some sort of clever you know observations to it in the sense of it's you know Poirot making observations about bridge being relevant to the to the story and about oh well you know they can't have been playing bridge for an hour like you say because. You know, they only had 51 cards out. Mm. One was in the box. So it doesn't make any sense. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it, but it doesn't come together in a satisfying way mm. again. I think it's, it's again, because it's another mystery where like, it's a, a bit like the previous episode. There isn't really a mystery. It's, it's sort of, it both is the exact thing, thing you expect and isn't, but in a way that you, you can't really do much about. But I also think that the resolution isn't delivered in a very satisfying way because half mm. of it comes at the house and the answer to the murder thing just sort of happens in a slightly woolly roundabout conversation that he's having with Hastings, right? Yeah, I think, well, I think that's a similar thing, right? Like the, the connection to the previous episode, probably to say what I just said, but better is that in the previous episode, one of its weaknesses in the incredible theft, the weakness is that there are lots of people who potentially could have motivation to do the thing, but they're never seriously entertained by the episode of people who could have done it. Mm. So you go through the whole episode without compelling other suspects, right? Yeah. Um, this episode also goes to great lengths at the start to set up a, a whole array of characters who might have motivations to kill, um, uh, Reed Burns, but none of them come back until you're so far along with the, the, the correct thread. Mm. that you really consider it right like i think in that's maybe one of the things that like the longer episodes of Poirot do better is you spend a little bit of time with each of the people who might have done it and that gives you you know lots of different threads of information to chew on whereas these last couple have been very like Poirot is on the right track from the start and you watch Poirot resolve the correct path mm. and whatever kind of other possibilities are raised at the start only get brought back in to be closed at the end if that makes sense Mm. Or get dropped completely in the case of the previous episode. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I mean, I think there's only so much you can do with a short story if you're trying to, sure, you know, yeah. plump it out to fill an episode or whatever. So maybe I should go back and read the, that entire collection. But, um, yeah. So it's, yeah. Mm, it's, I don't know, five out of ten. Y yeah. A six out of ten only because of Hastings' explanation of cubism. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I say five out of ten in the sense of it is a an uninspiring Poirot, mm. where the, that series and that character has scope to be ten or ten plus, you know? Yeah, yeah. Next week? Next mm. week, maybe? Next, 
Yeah, well, we'll find well, out. Within the next fortnight, hopefully. Yeah. Um, we will be doing the last episode of season one, which is called The Dream. Ooh. Mm. <laughs> so, yes. And then... The Manic Pixie Dream. <laughs> Manic Pixie The Dream Detective. Good God. Anyway, mm. yes, so that'll be the final episode of season one, which is exciting. It will. Uh, it'd be weird. Would, you, would we take a break? Because we're going to do a questions episode. Yes. So, obviously, if you have any questions uh, burning or otherwise that you would like to send in uh, on the subject of... Poirot, Hastings, Miss Lemon, Inspector Jap. Filing systems. Yes. Um, then obviously, uh, send them in. It's the usual Crate and Crowbar address. So, so questions, questions at, at crateandcrowbar.com. Um, and if you put little gray cells in the subject line, then that makes life easier when we are going to look for them. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that is all of the business uh, so we can we can do the other bits what's our patreon chris it's patreon.com forward slash crate and crowbar uh, mm. by supporting the main crate and crowbar podcast we use for all of the other spin-off things that we do including this epi- episode episode podcast podcast <laughs> is what it's called there's also a discord community which you can reach via our website which is crate and crowbar.com and we are Crate and Crowbar on all of the social media. So yes. YouTube and Twitter and so forth. Well, it's, yeah. Well, you know, on those potentially two. future. Yes. Yeah, yeah. We'll get that Snapchat going like all the kids love. Yeah. With the cool Mastodon. dogs. I don't know what it is. It's fine. Um, <laughs> Do you not know it? Not. Well, only, th- okay. only, only any secretary. Anyway. Hmm, how do people find you on the internet? Pip? Oh, people can go to Twitter. I am at Philippa War, which is P H I L I P P A W A R. And I'm at C Thurston, which is C T H U R S T E N. Hmm. That was perfect. Excellent. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>